Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How's everybody? Feeling good today? Good. Good. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm one of Crosspoint's pastors, and today we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 7, specifically, will be in verses 36 through 50, the story of a sinful woman who approaches Jesus and uh, has this whole interaction that is, um, well, it's, it's, there's a lot going on, but there's really some very, some very basic foundational gospel truth here that I want us to see together. So while you're turning there, oh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, it'd be good to to rectify that, grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you or underneath the seat in front of you and turn to Luke chapter 7 so we can read it together. Let me pray for us first. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we're, we're hungry. We're famished. Uh, we have come through uh, another week of ups and downs and suffering and temptation and sin, um, joy and sorrow. Uh, but Lord, we need to be refreshed. We need to be restored and renewed and strengthened, encouraged, built up. We know that your word uh, will not return void, but that you, uh, you do feed your sheep by it. And so help us now uh, to feast on your word, to be nourished and um, strengthened with gospel truth. We pray that your son will be exalted uh, as I speak and as we just meditate on these truths here today. We ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. I'm going to read a little bit. I'll stop along the way at, at awkward moments and interject some thoughts, and then I'll, I'll round this thing out with a few points. Starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. All right, let's pause there. I want you to just get an idea of what this scene is, what's happening here in the story so far. We have a Pharisee. He's nameless right now because he's really intended, I think, to be more of just a representative of a type of person, a Pharisee type of person. And he invites Jesus to dinner. Now, as the story goes on, it becomes apparent that this man, this Pharisee, whose name is Simon, that he sees Jesus as a particular type of prophet, or if nothing else, he's aware of a public expectation uh, and identification of Jesus as such. So he invites Jesus into his home to share a meal, but also to talk, to get to know Jesus a little bit better, to see what he's about, maybe let Jesus know a thing or two about him what he is about, and that's exactly, what, that's exactly what happens. But we don't just have the Pharisee here. As you see, there's also a woman of the city, also identified as a sinner, 
who enters into this little dinner party. Now, some of you may be thinking, this is a really strange, <laughs> this has never happened to me, you know, I have somebody over for dinner and then someone just walks in off the street, you know. Uh, but, but in this time and place in the world, this, this cultural setting, this sort of thing really wouldn't be all that uncommon. You notice nobody freaks out when she walks in because it's not totally unexpected for somebody to be aware of a very public gathering of this important man with a Pharisee, uh, a lot of times the way people would gather for dinner would be in a more public setting, even in a house. Maybe it's in the courtyard or somewhere that people might know or at least be able to listen in and maybe come in and witness great minds talking and thinking. And so this woman, again, a sinner, this is how we are meant to think of her. She walks in. We don't know what type of sin she is known for. She's a woman of the city. Uh, I'll leave that to your imagination, what all that could imply. Um, But whatever the case may be, it's very serious. Uh, This is something that she is known for. This is what characterizes her. And it's something, as we'll see as well, that, that the Pharisee cannot imagine Jesus being comfortable with. The text gives us very great detail about what happens here. She comes in with a jar of expensive ointment, uh, not like olive oil, but, but something more, more costly, something that smells really good, something that you, you actually only can really use one time because this flask, you almost have to break off the, the, the neck of it to use it. She comes in with this jar. She's weeping. She's wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. She is crying so much. She wipes his feet with her hair because in the moment she has nothing else, there's nothing else she can even do. She's just so overwhelmed. This is what's at hand. She kisses his feet and anoints them with this ointment. It's a sobering emotion and series of emotions taking place here. How many of you have ever openly wept before complete strangers? But that's what this woman does. Something about Jesus, something about what he has done, what she knows of him, has overwhelmed her. It's bizarre, it's unexpected, it's a little uncomfortable, and in some level, it's, it's even somewhat socially inappropriate for a Jewish woman to be doing all of these things so openly, to let her hair down and wipe the feet of a man, not even her husband. I mean, this is all just, it's a lot to soak in. Let's keep going and see what happens. Picking up in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, what's he going to do? He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Simon is perplexed by what Jesus is doing here, or rather what Jesus is not doing. He says, okay, I've got this prophet that I've invited over for dinner. I'm feeding him all this great food. We're having great conversation. Here comes this woman. I'm very confused now because if he really knew who she is, he would have nothing to do with her. Something does not add up. This man cannot be the prophetic voice that I expected or that all the people at least expect him 
to be. And he thinks all this to himself. This is what he says to himself. And don't you love how Jesus, in this moment where Simon is thinking to himself, this guy's not a prophet, Jesus reads his mind and says, no, Simon, we got to talk. We got to talk, man. I mean, that's a record scratch of a moment, right? I mean, out of nowhere, Jesus says, I got something to say to you. And Simon, you can almost hear his voice crack. Say, say it, yeah, whatever. Talk to me, teacher. Let's go. Talk to me. What do you have to say? All right, let's see how it rounds out. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. This is Jesus speaking to Simon. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And if you were wondering, that's a lot of money. 500 denarii is maybe 20 months worth of wages. 50 denarii is probably two months, something like that. When they could not pay their debt, he, the moneylender, canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Seems pretty simple. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, and this is, this is the crux, this is the, the, the big idea of this whole story, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus stops the scene. I mean, he, he interrupts Simon. Uh, Simon's got these thoughts in his own head. Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking and says, hold up, let me tell you a story. I want to tell you a story. And in this parable, and don't you love how the Lord communicates some of the most deep foundational truths of the universe through little stories like this? I mean, how much does the Lord want us to understand of him that he would use such a simple story to communicate something as profound as what Jesus shares with Simon? And in this story, he gives him two, two types of people, or rather two different people. One owes a ton, the other owes a little bit less, but their debts are forgiven. And the question that Jesus asks of Simon and that he asks really of us is, who is going to love the money lender more? Simon is pretty obstinate about it. You can tell in his words, he says, well, I suppose, you suppose... This is not a difficult story, Simon. 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 Obviously, the guy who had the bigger debt is going to love the moneylender who canceled that big debt more, you suppose. 
But then, then Jesus follows up. Jesus, he just says, yeah, you got the right answer. Good for you. And he continues and he says, okay, do you see this woman? Does he see the woman? The, the woman who's openly weeping, wiping her tears with her hair on, on Jesus's feet, anointing them with oil. Most of this story has been a description of what this woman is doing. It is so in your face. Do you see this woman? But see, Jesus knows Simon really doesn't see this woman. He doesn't really understand what's going on in her heart. He doesn't know what she knows. There's this polarity here in this story between this sinner, this woman, whose name we never get. She's just known as a sinner. There's this polarity between her, a sinner, and the Pharisee, the saint. The saint, right? You've got her extreme actions of humility. I mean, just she's utterly abased herself before the Lord. She, she's taking on, I mean, the most extreme servantile actions, it's, 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 it's not just humbling. I mean, it's, it's always kind of humiliating what she's doing. It's so extreme. You compare that to Simon, who hasn't even, as Jesus points out, he hasn't even bothered to do the minimum expectations of being a good host in the ancient Near East, <laughs> right? I mean, Jesus is like, man, you didn't even give me water, Period. You didn't anoint me with oil at all. And those are not over and, and like above and beyond in terms of, of Jewish hospitality. I mean, that's just the bare minimum. You haven't even done this. And I've got this woman over here who is, I mean, she's giving all that she can out of love for me. I, I mean, really, just think about this. I mean, I want you to imagine this picture I think sometimes we read stories like this and we just sort of gloss over it, maybe because we're familiar with it. But, I mean, really, consider the scene. I want you to picture this scene. There is a woman who comes in who is, I mean, she's weeping. She clearly intended to anoint Jesus, but when she comes in, all she can do in his presence is weep. And now we can speculate as to why. Maybe there's gratitude there. There's, certainly there's love there. We don't really know what exact pattern of sin she's been in. But nevertheless, I mean, there is incredible emotion here. Don't lose sight of that. Don't gloss over that. Uh, what's happening here is, it's unbelievable. I think this, this story has uh, just so many things that we can unpack. I want to narrow it down to, to three truths, three, three points here in this text. One, number one, Jesus offers radical forgiveness. Jesus offers radical forgiveness. I want to unpack what that, what that means. Consider this. I mean, consider just, once again, Simon's assumption about Jesus here right? It's totally upended. He assumes, looking at Jesus, thinking of him as a prophet, he says, okay, okay, Jesus would flee this woman or at least cast her away if he really knew. 
If he really knew who she is, what she has done, where she has been, he would have nothing to do with her. On the surface, on the surface, I mean, literally his words would be that true prophets know a sinner when they see one. True prophets, a true man of God, the voice piece of God Almighty, he would know a sinner when he sees one. That's what he's thinking. That's what he says. But underlying that assumption is something else. It's something a little bit more foundational, which is, and this is the heart of his objection, it's that in his mind, true prophets want nothing to do with sinners. That's really what he's getting at. He's not just questioning Jesus' omniscience. He's saying, I know Jesus does not know everything about this woman, in his mind, because he's not acting the way I expect, which would be to send her away or at least move to the other side of the room. But that's not what Jesus does. Therefore, to Simon, Jesus is illegitimate. He doesn't understand because he's not a true reflection of the way God feels about sinful people. And I just, you know, for a moment, I mean, think how often you think of yourself or other people that way. I mean, think about that. Oh, man, if Jesus, if the Lord really knew me, no, he would have nothing to do with me. If the Lord really knew him or her, he, he wouldn't have anything to do with them. I've seen their life. I know their theology. I know their sin or lack thereof of good theology. And all that. I, I know. And I'm telling you, the God I know, he doesn't want anything to do with that. I mean, how often do you think that? Maybe you don't say that to yourself, but, but deep down that is sort of what drives the way that you view other people or maybe even the way that you view yourself. And, and it's fueled by this expectation that that the Lord has nothing to do with sinners at all. I mean, that's just the standard. And yet, and yet, the parable that Jesus shares says, and just let's look back at it, when they could not pay, verse 42, when, when, these, when these debtors could not pay, the moneylender canceled the debt of both. I mean, they, they have nothing. It's not like they were on some installment plan, you know, and they just sort of missed a month or two and it was getting dicey and they were wondering what's going to happen. They have nothing to offer. And the moneylender, I mean, he cancels their debt. He forgives their debt. Now that word for cancels, that word for forgives, is used several times in the New Testament. And I'll give you a few references here. Romans 8.32 uh, says this, this is speaking of, of the gospel. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Graciously giving. I mean, that's the same, the same word here that's being used. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Freely given. Consider Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Or Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This canceled debt is a grace that this moneylender gives to these two debtors. He graciously overlooks their debt. He graciously gives them the credit that they needed. He freely gives it to them. He grants to them forgiveness of their debt. He forgives their debts. This, this type of this type of grace is all the more remarkable because he knows, as the moneylender, exactly what is owed here. And Jesus, in this story, in the narrative that we've just read, he knows. I mean, the great irony of Simon's, of Simon's objection to Jesus is that, well, Jesus can't possibly know because he would act this way. But what he doesn't realize is that Jesus' actions toward this woman reveal, in fact, that he knows everything about her. There is not an element of her life that he is unaware of, and yet he freely forgives her debt. He freely forgives it. He gives grace. See, what Simon doesn't understand, what, this, what the Pharisees in general don't understand, maybe what you don't understand and what we all need to be reminded of again and again and again is that Jesus loves sinners, that Jesus freely bestows forgiveness and grace on exactly the sort of people who are most in need of it. Now, I don't think you understand. I don't think you understand. This is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You're thinking of forgiveness the way you offer forgiveness. Don't do that. You need to think of forgiveness the way Jesus offers forgiveness. How many of us, when we forgive somebody, are really only willing to forgive in as much as they make things right themselves? How many of us are willing to forgive another person, to express that forgiveness only after we get a sense that the other person we're forgiving is going to use it wisely? How many of us will forgive somebody and be gracious to someone only when we feel like they know how much it costs us? But that's not how Jesus forgives that's not how God forgives. He forgives freely. He generously bestows grace on people who do not deserve it. Now, there's some theological implications of this, as you might imagine. But I think the biggest here is that forgiveness precedes and actually fuels love for Christ. Forgiveness precedes and fuels love for Christ. Uh, this, this woman, she, she comes in and loves Jesus, and we see her love so clearly. 
as Jesus points out, this love is the result of forgiveness. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. That's what makes this forgiveness so radical. Do you see that? It's not that she loved Jesus and he said, I'll forgive you. It's that he forgave her. Before she cared about anything, before she cared about him at all. He forgave her regardless of the love that she displayed towards him after. That is grace. That's that's the grace that Jesus affords his people. Point number two. Okay, so point number one, Jesus offers radical forgiveness. Point number two, we love Jesus in direct proportion to how we perceive his forgiveness. See, the problem in this story is not so much the woman's need for more forgiveness than the Pharisee. I know that we get this language of much and many, but that's not really the issue at stake. It's not that she needed more forgiveness than the Pharisee. It's rather that the woman perceived her need to be far greater than that of the Pharisees' perceived need. It's not that she needed forgiveness more than the Pharisee needed forgiveness. It's that she realized her need for forgiveness more than the Pharisee realized his need. You know, verse 49, as as the story concludes, the people sitting there are astounded, not that Jesus forgave all of her sins. They're astounded that Jesus forgives sins at all. And then verse 47, Jesus says, and I'm going to add a little paraphrase here, therefore, based on how she has treated me, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. In other words, I can say this with certainty because she loved much. Extreme actions. This woman's extreme actions correspond to the extreme forgiveness as she has experienced, not necessarily the extremity of her sin. You notice we never really even know what her sin is because that's not exactly the point. We just know that she's a sinner. We know that she's really racked up a debt, but we we don't really know the nature of, of what her sin is. Because the point here is not so much what her sin was, but the incredible grace that she has received at the at the feet of Jesus. One, it's one thing to admit your need for a Savior. It's another thing to acknowledge the grace that he gives you. You see the, you see the difference there. I'll, I'll just give you kind of an example. You know, we, uh, we baptize people all the time at Crosspoint throughout the year. And one of the things we like to emphasize is a person's testimony when they're being baptized. We'll have someone read it. Uh, and we'll ask the person being baptized to put that testimony together weeks in advance. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's, let's really hone what it is that, uh, your, what's your story? What's your testimony? What has the Lord done in your life? Um, but it's really easy, and this is something we all do. It's very easy for us to really emphasize sin, the depth of our sin, the, the frequency of our sin, the type of sin, to really zero in on just how horrible we, we once were. That's kind of human nature. And, and then to fail to really revel in the grace of the Lord 
that is accomplished through your redemption, your forgiveness, salvation. It's just kind of natural. Because I think sometimes we see the great glory of our testimony not in the work of Christ, but in, uh, in, in what we've done. The great hurdle he had to jump. Uh, but I, I want you to see what's so beautiful about this story, what's so beautiful about this, this woman's testimony is not what she's done, but rather what Jesus has done for her. I mean, he, he, he has absolutely forgiven her sin, not because of something she did, but because of his grace and mercy. I want us to see that it is impossible to be indifferent toward Christ if you truly understand this grace. So the Pharisee is unmoved by God's grace. He, he just, you know, I suppose, I mean, he just refuses to acknowledge what's going on. The Pharisee says if he knew everything about her, he'd have nothing to do with her. And, and that sentence, that statement is is undergirded by, by three conspiring misunderstandings in his own heart. There's three things, three, three areas of doctrine that he just doesn't understand, though he thinks that he does, that cause him to be blind to the grace of the Lord. And I wonder if maybe you fall into any of these categories. Uh, three conspiring misunderstandings. Number one, He's unaware of the pervasiveness of sin in his own heart. See, Simon, he, he gets that sin is a big deal. He knows that it's an offense, an affront to God. The problem is that he doesn't see it in himself. He sees it in this woman. He knows where she's going. But he doesn't perceive it in himself because he doesn't see sin as this universal human problem. Maybe he doesn't see himself as being sinful at all, or maybe, and I think this is more likely, and I think this is something we can more easily relate to, maybe he sees his sin as just more manageable. He doesn't really, he doesn't really need to feel the weight of it because it's not that big of a burden. He's a Pharisee. He knows all the ins and outs of how to be made right with God. There's a whole system of laws and sacrifices and everything that you just, man, you know, if you know, you know, and you, just, you, you coast through life and it's just, everything's kind of taken care of and dealt with. He doesn't see that sin is death. He sees sin as, as dirt under your fingernails, but he, he doesn't see it as a dead heart. He doesn't see it as a universal problem. He certainly doesn't see it in his, in his own heart. He's not just unaware of sins, uh, like tentacles over everything, but he is also oblivious to the presence of God in Christ. Totally oblivious. If this man were a prophet, he'd know. And yet he is a prophet. And yet he is the all-knowing presence of God there in his living room. But he doesn't, he doesn't cherish the presence of God. He can't see it when it's right there in front of his face. 
And so consequently, because he doesn't see his sin and because he doesn't see the Savior initiating, coming towards him with incredible condescension, he doesn't get it. He misses what this woman sees so clearly. And and so not only does he understand these two things about who Jesus is or the nature of of Simon's own heart, but he he misunderstands, thirdly, who God is. And it's tricky because he, he has a partially really good view of God. His theology is just very incomplete. He knows that God knows all. He's aware that God is omniscient. And he is committed to the idea that God is holy. That's why Jesus certainly can't fit into any of these categories because Jesus clearly doesn't know this about her because in his holiness, if he were holy, he would want nothing to do with her. The problem is that his view of God is very short-sighted. It's incomplete. What he does not understand is that the God of the Bible that he claims to know so well is also the very source of love, mercy, and grace. And so he misses it. He's completely unaware If he knew everything about her, he'd have nothing to do with her. But I want to contrast this with this woman, the sinner, who is overwhelmed by God's grace. She's more aware of God's merciful character than this Pharisee can even dream. She comes into the room assuming, knowing that God is merciful and gracious. She's emboldened by the nearness of God in Christ. When she looks at Jesus, she knows exactly with whom she is dealing. This is no mere man. This is no mere prophet. This is God in the flesh. And because she knows that God is gracious, she boldly walks before and in front of up to Jesus. But rounding this picture out, the third leg of the stool that Simon completely missed, but that this woman understands is that She is humbled by the depth of her sin. You can't can't really have an experience of God's grace without these three things. You just can't. You're not going to see it for what it is. If you don't see the depth of your sin, we don't call that grace, we call that entitlement. Right? If, If you don't see who Jesus truly is, you don't have the presence of God You have some sort of distant abstraction, an idea, but a naive one, right? And if you don't see God as gracious, if you don't see his mercy as well as his justice, you're not even going to walk in the room. You can't, you cannot, you will not fully experience or even partially understand the grace of God in Christ without knowing your sin, knowing who Jesus is, and knowing the kindness and mercy of God. Colossians three thirteen and 14 says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
Simon says, if, if he knew everything about her, he'd have nothing to do with her. But the woman, the sinner, she says, he knows everything about me, and he will not send me away because of who he is. I wonder which of these people describes you. Which of these two camps do you fall in? Scripture is really clear. Loving God is the obvious sign of having received forgiveness. We, we have been redeemed to love the Lord. Not just be cleansed or puffed up with knowledge. We have been redeemed to love the Lord. Not just be made neutral, but to positively lean towards him. Do you love the Lord like this woman? Do you love the Lord with the same boldness that this woman has? With the same humility that this woman has? Do you love the Lord? Because, point number three, love is the expression of saving faith. Love is the expression of saving faith. Think about, think about this woman's philosophy, right? He knows all about me, but he won't send me away because of who he is. It, is there any other definition? I mean, that, that is faith itself. That's what faith looks like. I am banking on this being true. And I am putting all of myself out there that this is true. She has no real reason other than scripture to think that this would be true. But she risks it all, walks right up off the street into this dinner party and unloads Because she is certain of who Jesus is. That is faith. It's not her love that saved her. You understand that? Have you seen that? Jesus literally tells us this. It's not, the, it's not her love that saved her. Her love is a fruit of the forgiveness that she has found. But that forgiveness is not the result of love, therefore. That forgiveness is the result of faith. Jesus tells her, it's your faith that has saved you. And I think we all understand, it's not really the fact that she has faith. You can believe all kinds of crazy, ridiculous things. It does, in fact, have to be true, though, right? It's the object of her faith that has saved her. It's the reality of what her faith is in that has saved her. And so, consequently, love is the fruit of salvation. Faith leads to love in the same way that fire leads to warmth. It's not so much a chronology thing as it is a, a source thing. Right? Fire and heat, they go together. You can't, have, you can't have a fire and not have heat. And yet, you're not going to have heat without the fire. And the same is true of love for God. You cannot love the Lord apart from faith. You just can't. Because you do not receive forgiveness that fuels that love apart from faith. You just can't. 
the beautiful thing is that Jesus beckons us in, he welcomes us in, and we come before him in boldness, in humility, and with great hope that who he says he is, is true. And we come before him and receive exactly what we've set out to find. Sustained faith, like, like constant, sustained, maintained, fed faith, yields growing love. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Christian life, therefore, is more than just knowing facts. Whether those are facts about yourself or facts about somebody else. The Christian life is about knowing Christ. Knowing who he truly is. Believing that. And allowing him to do everything. I just want to conclude with a few little questions here. Are you aware of everyone else's sins but your own? You might have more in common with Simon than you do with this sinful woman. Do you know the gospel, but you're unable to muster genuine love for the Lord? You don't love the things of the Lord. You don't love the people of God. You don't you don't love his word. You don't love going before him. We're talking the kind of love that weeps over your sin and over the grace that you found. Is that a love that you would use to describe yourself? Let's examine ourselves. Examine yourself. Repent of your sin. Look to Christ and believe. And then you will know what it means to love God. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we, we want to love you. We want to grow in our love for you. So often we take a backwards road to get there. We try to muster this up ourselves. We try to fuel it with, with different things. But we put the cart before the horse more often than not because we fail to come to you the right way. We lean on ourselves and the, the strength of the love we can muster up, failing to realize that it is our own lack of love for you, our chief sin that separates us from you. And we can't dig ourselves out of that hole. Which is why you have sent your son to be that redemption that we so desperately need. In your kindness, in your love for us, you sent Jesus, fully God and fully man, 
all-knowing, perfectly holy, and merciful. And you beckon your people to yourself. You invite us in. You welcome us in that we might receive forgiveness of our sin, even the sin of unbelief, even the sin of failing to love you, of failing to see you for who you truly are. Or you initiate that. You bring it about. You love us first. Therefore, we can love you. Lord, I pray for your people today that we would love you because of what you have done, that we would love you in response to what you have done, even literally that we would love you because of the work that you have accomplished in our own hearts. Just like this woman who, who's, whose salvation was grounded in the faith that she had in Christ and who therefore loved much. Help us to love you much. Help us to rightly see our sin. Help us to rightly see who Jesus is and open our eyes to the grace that we have in your gospel. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.